Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Marcelo Lima of Hella House. We're going to talk about his journey from Benjamin Graham style liquidation investor to more of a Buffett uh, franchise investor right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Hi, Marcelo. How are you? Hey, Tobias. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. So just before we get started, tell me a little bit about Hella House. Yeah, so we started in 2010. Um, I I was working previously in uh, I, I left college and started out as a as a software developer for several years, and then I worked in uh, in real estate finance. Uh, I worked um, uh, at a hedge fund and uh, and started the fund in 2010 really because I wanted to pursue some some very specific ideas that I had. And back then, it was sort of the aftermath of the uh, of the great crisis, right? So there were a lot of these. Ben Graham type situations that were very attractive. And a lot of them traded in foreign markets. Specifically for us, we found a lot of things in London. And and the reason for this is uh, London has a lot of these closed-end funds. And so what happened uh, on on the lead up to the crisis is a lot of promoters, uh, hedge funds, investors, et cetera, were raising these closed-end funds to go and buy European real estate or go buy uh, some other type of, of sort of hard asset. There was even a fund that we invested in that had um, uh, carbon credits for for pollution offset. And so some of these were pretty complicated. Some of these are a lot simpler. Uh, the overall theme, though, is that after the crisis, after 2008 and 2009, the asset values dramatically collapsed, right? A lot of these things had leverage in, in the case of real estate. And so you had sort of this double whammy effect. Imagine that you have a closed-end fund trading close to NAV, but then all of a sudden the NAV gets destroyed, there's leverage on it, and then uh, the the spread widens. So it's trading close to NAV, but now it's trading at a 30% discount to a much discounted NAV. Uh, and then you lose liquidity, uh, the, the stock doesn't trade as frequently, there's no sell-side coverage because now the sell-side can't really make a lot of money promoting these things. And so that created a lot of opportunities in, in London. So. We exploited that for several years, and uh, it, it works out. When it works out, it works out fantastically, right? Uh, and so there's a there's a very strong intellectual appeal to this Ben Graham type of investing. It's very uh, it's very intellectually stimulating because when you can mathematically prove that something is below liquidation value, you know, oh, you know, maybe this building isn't worth what they say it's worth. Maybe it's worth. 50% less, but even then it's impossible for me to lose money. And so you, and I know what the rents are and I know what the market is like, et cetera. Uh, and then on top of that, there were a lot of these situations where the, these little closed end funds had 
the board of directors had been taken over by uh, a hedge fund, and they had put in place a process to liquidate the investments and return cash to, to investors. So it was, in fact, liquidating, and there was a, a hard catalyst in place. So, so that was, you know, that worked out really well. But, but as the years went by, uh, you know, sort of the drawbacks of this strategy started started appearing. And so, uh, you know, these things are obviously pretty illiquid once you get in. But then, as they liquidate, and they become smaller and smaller, and they become even more illiquid. So it's it's some it's counterintuitive. But as the thesis plays out and becomes sometimes more de-risked. It becomes harder to participate in in the opportunity. Before, just before you go too much further, uh, how, how did you? So, if your background was software, and then real estate financing, did you say? Yeah. So, how do you how do you how do you make the leap to uh, to value investment from there? Yeah, great question. Uh, when I was in the real estate finance uh, job, uh, so I. Uh, long story, I was trying to raise money for a consumer products uh, company that I had started on the side with a friend. And I was trying to raise money for it. And I came across this uh, real estate investor who was doing tremendously well. And and he said, hey, come work with us. It's a great opportunity. And that's when I jumped into real estate finance. Well, the first month on the job, I read uh, Warren Buffett's biography. And, uh, the I just Lowenstein one. Exactly. And completely fell in love with the with this idea that you could invest in different businesses. You didn't have to be tied to uh, software or consumer products or real estate, and that you could analyze things and sort of pull the trigger when it made the most sense to do so. So I I just became a huge uh, Buffett fanatic and and learned everything I could about first Ben Graham. And then Buffett and read all of his letters and started going to Omaha and attending the Value Investing Congress, et cetera. So, um, you know, in a way, that was a very positive experience, obviously, because you you sort of learn a lot. And in, 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 in another way, if you look at it, in, you know, if you invert it, it's uh, it also, I think, uh, uh, crystallizes in your brain a way of thinking that sometimes is hard to break. Right. So I'll give you an example. I saw and this is something we'll get into later, perhaps, but I saw more than one uh, short pitch for on Salesforce.com uh, at the at the Value Investing Congress. So famous investor goes on stage, says this company's dramatically overvalued. Look, they're losing money. This makes no sense. It's a short. And of course, now we know that was incredibly wrong. And so, but but all of us were sort of nodding and saying, "Wow, yeah, of course, this thesis, this guy is so smart. This thesis is airtight, makes a lot of sense." But we were fundamentally misunderstanding the, the the sort of the the change that came about with the rise of the internet and the delivery of software as a service. So, uh, so that is all to say that being in in this crowd of, of value investors and going to Omaha and listening to Buffett. Uh, is is a great education, but it can also perhaps prevent you from having a more open mind and and embracing something that's new. Buffett's own style, though, has always been more towards finding something that compounds and finding something that's at a very high return on invested capital, sustainably so. And then you uh, look at the growth of that over an extended period of time and try and buy that at uh, a meaningful discount that you get a margin of safety. So, what's the what what has what has software as a service changed to what Buffett had traditionally done? 
Well, I, I wouldn't say that it's, uh, it's, it's software as a service. I would say it's the internet. Um, you know, the internet has, has created a world where all of a sudden you have something that never existed pre-internet, which is uh, zero marginal costs. So I can create a product and in, in, let's say in the, in the pre-internet world, let's say I am Procter & Gamble and I create a new type of detergent, uh, I control distribution. So because I'm Procter & Gamble, I have my distributors, I have the slots in the supermarkets and I, can, I, I own some shelf space, I own perhaps the end caps and I can place that new detergent I can advertise it on television, and and just for for the purposes of this discussion, let's be very extreme to make a point. Let's go back to the 1950s. There's like three TV channels, call it right, and so I can advertise. I have I have prime time uh, advertising spots. I control all of them because they're all uh, there's only three channels, and I, I also advertise on radio. I advertise in print, and the. The customer will go to the shop, uh, go to the supermarket, buy the product, have that brand recognition, uh, and go home and you know rinse and repeat. And so the cycle continues. Now imagine all of a sudden the internet happens, right? And we have an explosion in in uh, the number of channels available. In fact, the whole concept of channels disappears when you have YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, etc. Uh, the uh, the barriers to advertising are no longer there. The, again, the concept of primetime advertising to a large extent disappears. It's uh, it's a lot of it is programmatic on Facebook and Instagram, et cetera. And the game becomes one. And now you have, of course, this, this theme of software uh, consuming more and more of what we uh, of the of the goods and services that we consume, right? So software is eating the world, as Mark Andreessen says, and and software can be delivered at zero marginal cost. So now uh, a company that had let's to pick on Procter and Gamble again, and Procter and Gamble is a great business. I'm 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 just saying it's uh, I'm just contrasting it with this new world. Um, the skills that Procter and Gamble has to in terms of controlling distribution and the slots at the supermarket are are less and less uh, relevant or valuable perhaps in this new world. Again, if you e-commerce, right, you have infinite shelf space or, or, or practically infinite shelf space. Um, and, and so the winner isn't necessarily the, 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 the incumbent. So, so business dramatically changed with the, with the, uh, with the advent of the internet. And I, and it's created a lot of dislocation and disruption is a very overused term, but it created a lot of disruption of, of incumbent businesses. And so I think that that's what, what really changed. And it's not something that Buffett, uh, it, it was, was really onto until, until very recently. So how would you characterize something like Microsoft, which existed pre-internet and sold uh, an operating system that locked you in? And they sold that on floppy disks that were, you know, virtually costless to them. They had some distribution and they had some minimal cost of producing them. But as you know, any business school student will tell you that the first, the first disk that comes out costs whatever you know, one million dollars, and then every every disk that comes out after that costs thirty cents or something like that. And they were selling them for hundreds of dollars. Yeah, that's a great point, right? And so that was. Uh... 
that was uh, software as a service pre-internet, if you will. Software. I, <laughs> I think what, and, and it's funny that you bring this up uh, in the context of our conversation about Buffett because there's, uh, there's this famous uh, email that I'm a big fan of. Uh, I think it's just fascinating. Uh, Jeff Rakes, an executive at Microsoft, he also read the Lowenstein biography. This is back in, in the late 90s. And he wrote Buffett an email and said, hey, Mr. Buffett, you know, I just read your biography, and this is how Microsoft is similar to Seize Candies. This is how we're similar to Nebraska Furniture Mart. He's sort of making all of the analogies that Buffett would understand. And, and you know, he says, I know you like Coke and Coca-Cola, but, uh, you know, we're sort of a, this money printing machine. We have all these, uh, these PCs that have uh, a Microsoft license just coming out of the factory. And he says, look, I'll concede that as far as the long-term moat, it's a little bit uh, cloudier, right? It's hard to tell whether Microsoft will, be, will have such a strong moat 10, 20 years from now as Coke will. And Buffett replies to the email and says, look, uh, you sort of guessed, you know, that's exactly how I feel as well. Uh, as far as as far as the moat, I can predict Coke a lot better than I can predict Microsoft. And what I find very interesting is that right around that time, this is late 90s, the volumes for carbonated soft drinks were really starting to fall uh, in the United States and, and around the world. So consumer tastes were changing dramatically. What were they shifting Coca to? Uh, I I think it, it, there was there was this explosion of of drink um, bottled water. Of sort of, yeah, not not only that, it's you know it's funny. I I think it was um, I forget his name. Uh, it's escaping me now. But the, the founder of um, of Boston Beer. Uh, so he he was talking recently on a call and he said, look, when I was a kid, uh, you you had water and Coke and that was it. Now you have kombucha and iced tea and Starbucks. So there's huge variety of of drinks that you could go out and and purchase, and so. The only thing that sort of we knew is that carbonated soft drinks volumes were going down and customers were really seeking alternatives, whether it was water or LaCroix or, or, or coffee or, or who knows what else. And so that traditional advantage that Coca-Cola had was becoming uh, less and less relevant. And, and it was fascinating because Coca-Cola, uh, the company was in, in 2000 was trading at something like 40 times earnings. And which is a very high multiple, given the subsequent very low growth that it experienced. Microsoft was also trading at a very high multiple, um, and that stock underperformed for a very long period of time after 2000. But it's, it turns out now, with the benefit of hindsight, right, 20 years later, that Microsoft uh, was indeed a much more prosperous business than either Jeff Rakes from Microsoft or Buffett believed, because perhaps uh, they were very high margin software they were able to take those cash flows and invest in adjacent uh, businesses like gaming and search and they're not huge in search but they do have i think seven billion in revenue from bing which is kind of unbelievable but gaming is a big business for them all their uh, entire office suite at microsoft azure of course is uh is is growing dramatically now their cloud offering and so, uh, and so, it turned out to be a much better bet than 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 Buffett uh, believed, and I find that kind of fascinating. So, yeah, to, to answer your question, it, it was sort of the 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 internet sort of accelerated that process of delivering software at very low marginal cost, whereas the marginal cost was a floppy disk back then. 
all of a sudden it was just sort of the cost of transmitting the bits over the internet. So one of the uh, companies that we were discussing before we we came on air is Zoom. So would you like to just tell tell us a little bit about Zoom, and then um, I I just want to use that as a as a way that we can discuss software as a service. Yeah. So you know what's fascinating is, and, and this ties into uh, a, a sort of a broader discussion of of disruption and and what it is, but. Uh, you know, a company like like uh, like Zoom, I, I think it's I think it helps if we talk a little bit about disruption. But uh, you know, sort of the, the traditional uh, theory of disruption uh, envisioned by by Clay Christensen is is a theory that uh, involves a, a a new startup company attacking an incumbent at the very low end. So it's typically a low end offering. Uh, the company, it's it's a lower margin offering. It's sort of attacking the customers that the incumbent doesn't necessarily care about because they are so low margin. What, what would be an example of that? Right. So you know the the classical example that 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 uh, that Clay Christensen uses in in his book. Uh, well, back then it was he talks about uh, uh, hard disk drive makers and uh, backhoe excavators, etc. A more recent example, I think, is Netflix, uh, sort of that everyone in the audience will be familiar with. So so Netflix, uh, when when it started out uh, mailing DVDs. It was in many ways an inferior experience because you, you didn't have that instant gratification of going to the blockbuster store and getting the tape that you wanted. Uh, in some ways, it was superior because you could have this long tail of the catalog available to you. Uh, but it, but in and many ways, you also ways, didn't it was have inferior. to go to the store. <laughs> and you also didn't have to go to the store. You did have to wait though, right? You have to right. wait at the mail for the thing to arrive in the mail, etc. And then remember, I don't know if you remember this. I remember clearly when Netflix started offering streaming, uh, it was it was horrible, right? It was low resolution. It was choppy because bandwidth wasn't really there. And so it was, it was clearly an inferior experience. But again, for for a certain cohort of customers, it was good enough. And Netflix sort of moved up market, so to speak, and started improving their offering. And, and then eventually started creating their own original shows and uh, and bypassing completely the the existing value chain of the the movie industry, that, which means not showing movies in in movie theaters, uh, going direct to consumer, etc. And of course, by virtue of being an internet, uh, it, effectively a software as a service uh, offering, uh, not in the traditional enterprise sense, but software delivered over the internet, they could then expand globally at a very uh, rapid clip. So, so that's an interesting example of that. Now, you know, there are there are other examples, for example, that uh, that do not fit the Clay Christensen definition, like Uber. Uh, and so, Clay Christensen came out and said, "Look, Uber is not disruptive, and the reason it's not disruptive is they uh, are not targeting. They're not a low-end offering that came in and, and offered uh, a, a, an inferior service at a at a cheaper price and then moved up market." In fact, right, Uber started at the high end. It was a replacement for black cars in San Francisco, uh, sort of the the very expensive high end. That was, the, that was the original pitch for for Uber that it would be a, w- a way to call a limousine, right? That, there's that very famous deck that floats around. But uh, most people probably became aware of Uber when it was, in fact, a, it, that's probably not a bad description of it, though, wasn't it? It was a low end. And you got into somebody else's car. You didn't get into a, a taxi. 
and it, and it costs less. And that was the that was kind of the that, idea, right? Exactly. So so even though Clay Christensen claims that Uber is not uh, disruptive because of the way it sort of began, uh, the aftermath it looks very much like disruption because, to your point, they use the same technology that they developed for the high end, meaning the the, the app, the routing technology. Uh, sort of this idea of matching riders and drivers, and they they were able to segment that across uh, across the low end as well. And now they have, as you know, a number of offerings. They have low end and and all sorts of things between low end and high end. And that's the difference now. When you have the internet, you're actually able to serve everyone because your marginal cost is is essentially zero. And so, you know, bringing the discussion back to Zoom. Uh, if if I you know if I am let's think of a pre-internet um, uh, business, if I'm delivering some sort of uh, conferencing service uh, without the internet, hard to imagine what that looks like. But uh, and I'm offering it to enterprise customers, so they're paying me a lot of money to offer these these services. I'm leaving the low end open for a a. a, a a, a worse offering at a lower price. So I'm leaving myself open to disruption there by a low-end provider. What Zoom can do, though, is they can just make it free for 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 customers who don't want to pay. And so as we were discussing prior to this call, anybody can go on Zoom.com, sign up, and start using their conferencing services for free. Uh, there's a time limit, and there's obviously a lot of features that you don't get, but but it's it's good enough. And so that prevents them, in theory, right? Prevents them from being disrupted by a low end, um, uh, by a low, low end attacker. And then what they can do is they can build all the features necessary uh, and and re requested by their most demanding customers as well. So they can serve everyone. And in fact, that's that's what they're doing. And of course, Zoom is just sort of a, a toy model that we're using here. This applies to a lot of these enterprise SaaS companies. There are existing uh, conference lines, though. For example, we're using we're using Skype, which is a, a, a competitor to Zoom. And if you uh, if you search free conference calling on the internet, you can find any number of uh, free alternatives. So wh why why would somebody shift from Skype or from a free alternative to Zoom? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and a lot of these, it's funny because a lot of these companies have a lot of competition, right? It's also the case for Salesforce. There's, it's just the, the space for uh, customer relationship management software is incredibly crowded, and and yet the company continues to do very well. So, what I think uh, is is the case is the the one the companies that are very well managed, they focus. They have this tremendous focus on customer pain points. So what is it that our customers are looking to do? What is it that, that's difficult for them to do in these other uh, offerings? And how can we make it easier for them? How can we, we remove friction and just make the experience better and better all the time and also build additional features that promote lock-in? So if you have, uh, you know, Zoom has this sort of network effect, which of course Skype does as well, but if I am a large enterprise and I have now developed all these Zoom rooms, uh, so with, with all the, the hardware there and I have my transcription that's built in and I've got, uh, you know, Zoom, if I have multiple people on the call, Zoom will automatically focus on whoever's speaking. So if you're 
constantly focused on on building these these features, it's it becomes harder and harder for for somebody to 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 switch out. And conversely, if you're let's say you're a Skype customer, uh, you're not going to have all that functionality. So you as you become a larger enterprise, you might have uh, you know uh, HIPAA compliance or whatever whatever type of of capability that you need as as an enterprise customer that that might not be uh you might not be suited any longer to stay with a with a Skype offering so zoom does have uh that potential to get those network effects and i think that that's probably been skype saving grace even though the product probably hasn't advanced much and it is reasonably difficult to use still almost everybody has a skype number and you can contact almost everybody on skype but what about something like Netflix? Where do you see Netflix's uh, competitive advantage? Oh boy, that's a that's a, a long conversation. But uh, <laughs> but Netflix, uh, you know, Netflix has this incredible focus, right? And and they have, I, I think, part of the competitive advantage of these companies is the fact that they are uh, founder led, and and they have just the they have earned the right to make these very tough decisions and steer the company in certain directions. And we see that very clearly today with uh, Facebook, for example. Uh, by the way, for the folks uh, you know who are listening to this who are familiar with Tom Russo, Tom Russo likes to talk about, Tom Russo is a famous value investor. He's uh, been running a uh, sort of this uh, very successful value portfolio for the, I don't know, 30 years. And he likes to talk about the capacity to suffer and how family-owned businesses have this ability to burden the income statement today in order to reap the rewards tomorrow. And when you look at, uh, it's funny because when you look at SaaS or, or something like Netflix, it very much looks like that, right? Netflix is famously losing money. Um, and however you, way you cut it, you know, from a cash flow perspective or, or an earnings perspective, but they're playing a different game. They're playing this game of uh, sort of uh, conquering the world and and garnering those customers all around the world and having the largest audience because once they have the largest audience, they can then spend more money and content because if I spend, you know, 15 billion, which I think is what they're spending this year in content, I can spread it across many, many more 140 million uh, subscribers. Whereas my competitors who are starting now, a lot of them are starting from zero how can you stomach that type of content spend if you have effectively now zero customers to spread that that content over? So, you know, Reed Hastings saw this very early on, and you know he sort of played out the chess in his mind and said, "Look, if if that's the end game, then I just have to be as aggressive as possible in acquiring customers, right?" So that was the game that they that they were able. This is all very much in a nutshell, right? But. Uh, their competitive advantage, I think, was really is really their their strategy and their sort of ability to to pursue that strategy, which a lot of competitors don't have. How would you contrast them to something like a, a Disney offering? Yeah, so you know, now that's a, it's a question in a lot of people's minds is is what's going to happen to to Netflix uh, uh, when Disney Plus is uh starts i think uh next month in november and uh, i i tend to believe that this is going to be complementary 
and not really uh, a substitution. I think there might be some substitution. Let's say a family is subscribing to Netflix and might churn out and, and, and just subscribe to Disney Plus. But I feel that the overwhelming, in the overwhelming case, it'll be complimentary. In other words, people will add Disney Plus to their Netflix subscription and not really substitute it because Netflix still has an extremely large catalog. Uh, it's got completely different types of offerings uh, in terms of the titles that they are willing to fund. Uh, Disney is going to be more likely a, a much more family-oriented offering. Uh, so I think it's brilliant for for Disney. It's it's uh it's about time that they did something like this. Uh, I've already signed up. I've already, you know, I got the deal where you can pay a huge discount for three years. Uh, so so I'm I'm very excited for that. But uh, I won't be personally. I won't be canceling my Netflix subscription because I feel that it's uh it's uh, something that I'll that I'll need to have as well. In order to compete in this new world, it sounds like you need to be a content producer and. It's not it's not quite like being a cable company which had to punch into your house and had the connection there. And it was, if you're in various parts of the states, you, you have one cable company in your area and they basically charge you whatever they want. And there's nothing you can do about it. Whereas for Netflix, it's just a tile on your Apple TV. And it, if you if you look through the tiles that are available, there are a lot there. And basically, I I think that what people tend to do is they have a show that they like. So Game of Thrones, for example, means that you need an HBO subscription. Once Game of Thrones goes away, HBO's offering looks a lot weaker, and I'm sure there are a lot of people thinking about churning off. Netflix needs to have that killer show, doesn't it? Or is it always going to be the bargain bin of you're just going to scroll for 45 minutes, maybe you find something you like, maybe you don't? What do you think? Yeah, look, and, and I want to be clear, I am... Uh, you know, we we uh, we do own Netflix. It's a it's a quite small position for us, so it's not something that I am, uh, you know, pounding the table on, etc. I'm a big believer in the company long term, and I, um, you know, if you if you if you do the math, uh, I believe that the company can be extremely profitable in the future. Um, having said that, there are challenges which you just outlined. What I think is the case is that Netflix has to have two things. One, it has to have filler content, which is the content that you described as sort of just flipping through the catalog and sort of being on the couch and vegging out and watching Friends or Seinfeld or whatever the case may be. But then, the, but then it also needs to have uh, sort of that that uh, that attraction, right? So, you know, Stranger Things or or Game of Thrones in the case of HBO, something that will keep people sort of that much must-watch content, which is the strategy, let's say that uh, that HBO or or Showtime have been very successful with. So we'll see how that plays out. You know, I I think that Netflix is doing a very good job with its uh, with its local content. So things in India and in Brazil uh, and Germany have been other countries has has been extremely successful. And a lot of that content travels very well. So they've been pointing out how, you know, a Brazilian show was popular around the world. There's a Spanish show, uh, House of you know Money Heist, which was very popular around the world, etc. So that um, uh, that shows that this strategy of amortizing content costs across a huge base of subscribers uh, works. We'll see if they can continue with their with their magic touch. It becomes a slightly more difficult proposition though, doesn't it? Because it becomes, uh, you need to have that killer content. You need to have that, uh, that thing that people will go and see. And it makes you a little bit more like a movie studio, which if you miss in any given year, then that could hurt you pretty significantly. 
Right. But let me take the other side of that argument, right? If I have the largest uh, content budget and the largest audience, then I'm going to attract the best producers, the best actors, the best talent, right? And so it becomes uh, a lot easier, quote unquote, to actually produce winning content. If I if I'm Netflix and I'm and I have a roster of phenomenal uh, writers, producers, actors, etc. I'm going to have my share of hits, and uh, and and my share is going to be bigger than the next guy's share because the next guy is spending a fraction of what I am in content, has a fraction of my audience. So you could uh, you could, I think, very persuasively make this argument of of increasing returns, where sort of the bigger gets bigger by virtue of already being bigger than everybody else and having that ability to attract all that talent. Uh, just just changing gears a little bit, uh, we, we leapt ahead. You, you sent me this wonderful document, uh, white writing on, on a black background. Uh, and there were some very interesting points in that early on that I want to make sure that we address. Uh, you talked about some of the, uh, the problems with Grahamite investing. So let's go back to that. And then yeah. uh, that was, I think it was largely driven by a study that Irving Kahn did on Geico. So would you please take us through that? Yeah, sure. And by the way, that's you noticed I like to use dark mode in, in Word. <laughs> in everything. Yeah, so, in everything. Uh, so we were talking about the sort of the drawbacks of this liquidation type of investing, uh, how it becomes smaller, a smaller part of your portfolio as it goes along. And then you also have to pay taxes when the thing finally liquidates two, three years uh, from now. Um, again, going back to uh, Tom Russo, uh, he he talks about having all this unrealized gains in, in something like uh, Heineken, right, that he's owned for 30 years. And that's that's pretty attractive, never having to pay taxes on it if you don't sell it. Uh, you know, in, the, in, the, in our case, we were also in foreign markets, so we had to hedge the currency, which is fine, but hedging the currency has a drag on your portfolio because it costs money to hedge. Uh, and then I think the biggest one is uh, opportunity costs. So what I realized is that while I was sort of grinding this out and going, you know, on these one-off situations and putting all this work into figuring out uh, what these liquidations were going to look like, uh, there were these phenomenal businesses that were just sort of compounding, uh, and they, you know, I wasn't even looking at them. So uh, when I sort of opened my eyes to this, I I went back and it's funny because sort of accidental accidental almost I I sort of rediscovered this part of Ben Graham which I had read many years prior. So uh, the sort of this this uh, epiphany was, you know, Ben Graham in the uh, in the appendix to Intelligent Investor, he sort of writes almost matter of factly. He says, oh, you know, it's sort of ironic that. We bought, we put 20% of our fund in this one company. He doesn't even name the company. We know it's Geico, but he doesn't even name it. We sort of put 20% of our fund in this company in 1948, and the thing was a 145 bagger. Actually, uh, between the time he bought it and the peak, it was a 600 bagger. But the way he describes it in the uh, in the appendix, it makes it sound like it's a 100, 145 bagger over 24 years. And he says that one stock. Uh, made more money. He says, ironically enough, the aggregate of profits accruing from the single investment decision far exceeded the sum of all the others realized <laughs> through 20 years of wide-ranging operations in the partner's specialized fields involving much investigation, endless pondering, and countless individual decisions, right? So everybody knows the, the famous stories of uh, Northern Pipeline and the Guggenheim liquidation and all that. Those things were a lot of work, 
right? He had to solicit proxies and wait for the next annual meeting and build his case and all that. Uh, these things were liquid. So uh, even back then, it was it was a ton of work and the the sort of the, the profits were capped and then you have to move on to something else. And that one investment made, made more profits than all that. So I, I thought, hey, could you have put on a 21st century analyst uh, analyst's hat and analyzed Geico with all all the things that we know today in terms of disruption theory and uh, and the way businesses evolve and and sort of target addressable mar- total addressable market and all that. And so I, I went back and I said, look, uh, what is Geico, right? So Geico was this company that uh, that Graham invested in 1948. It was founded in 1936. So what could we have uh, figured out right before uh, Graham invested? So let's let's go through the list here. So in 1948, if you looked at car registrations, this is public uh, government information, car registrations had compounded at 20% a year over the previous 47 years. Right. So, okay. <laughs> car, a lot of people are buying cars. If you looked at cars per capita, there was only one car or truck per capita in the U.S. Okay. So maybe there's, you know, population is growing a lot. There's going to be baby boomers now. Maybe that wasn't a known fact, but maybe there's room for more cars. Um, there w- I, I found this article in the New York Times uh, from February 1947, so a year before Graham invested. And the article quoted a car dealership uh, saying, look, if you try to buy a car, you're going to find uh, a wait list that's going to take you months. And it might even take you into the next year. We just don't have enough cars to, to supply to people. And part of that was because there were steel shortages after the Second World War. But clearly there was pent-up demand. In fact, I, I found this funny thing, which is kind of crazy to imagine today. People were vacationing in Europe, and they were taking their cars in the, the ships to go to vacation in Europe. Because it's like you could land in Europe and go to Hertz and rent a car. It didn't exist, right? Um, That's amazing. And then, yeah. And then finally, you know, the interstate highway system had been talked about since 1938, uh, and there was uh, a series of documents that had been published uh, sort of with the proposal for the interstate highway system. So, okay, so here you, you're Ben Graham and you're like, okay, well, this thing, there's going to be an explosion of miles driven. And if you think of this, uh, you know, Brian Arthur, uh, Brian Arthur's idea of increasing returns, when you have a new technology like the car, you're going to have a lot of things that are enabled by the car. So you're going to have gas stations and you're going to have probably a lot of hotels and uh, destinations that people can actually uh, take their cars to go see and things to do. So that will create the, sort of this this uh, flywheel effect where the more things there are to go and do, the more cars get sold and vice versa, right? So, uh, and, and in fact, uh, this, uh, you know, co- a couple decades later, Walmart was founded in the 60s uh, as, as a sort of a business uniquely enabled by the car, right? And then, and then finally, you know, Geico was was a disruptive business because it was direct to consumer. It it didn't have the the sales agent and the additional uh, layer of costs associated with that. Um, and they have something like half the cost structure of a traditional insurer. This is also in the Irving Kahn uh, study. I think it was a 14 percent uh, cost ratio compared to 28 cost rate percent cost ratio for a traditional insurer. So, oh, oh, and finally a better risk targeting model, right? So this is before big data, before FICO scores. How do you figure out, uh, the low, the low risk 
uh, sort of cohort to target? Well, the government employees insurance company, right? So that's the name of the company. And then they slowly started spreading and, and, and going to veterans and teachers and uh, people with bachelor's degrees, which were all, they, they were all lower risk customers. So sort of ticks all the boxes, right? You have this huge target addressable market, you have a disruptive innovator, uh, and you have sort of this huge secular tailwind. Now, could you apply that type of thinking to investing today? And and if so, could you just build a portfolio of Geico's and just get rid of all the cigar butts, right? And so that's what you sought to do with Hella House. You're trying to identify these companies. So one of the uh... Yes. Yeah, so you, you, you've talked about th this is the three components of disruptive inf innovation. Just to, I think I'm just summarizing what you've just said. The enabling technology, uh, the innovative business model, and a coherent value network. And that's the, that's the uh, I, I, I missed the gentleman's name, but that's the, that's the, the guideline that you're looking for when you're seeking these, these businesses. Right. So this is uh, this is textbook uh, Clay Christensen, right? And uh, you know you could argue whether these things have evolved, but I think the core of the the theory is is completely spot on. And the you know enabling technology is something like internet distribution. Um, the innovative business model is something like uh, Netflix uh, mailing DVDs and then streaming or software as a service, sort of a new way to deliver the product or service. And then the coherent value network is is really about having, like in the case of the automobile, the value network was the creation then of, of gas stations and roads and and sort of everything that enabled that that business to to develop. The example that Clay Christensen gives in the book, which is super interesting, is steamships versus uh, sailing ships. At the turn of the – from the 19th to the 20th century, uh, steamships were were about to take, take over. But before that, they were worse in just about every way. They were slower than sailing ships. They were more expensive than sailing ships. And so they were very suited to inland waterways where you didn't have wind or perhaps you had to travel against the wind. And performance was measured in a very different way. And the customers of the, of the sailing ships, which – who needed to go – Across the across the Atlantic or 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 across across the ocean, had really no use for an inferior technology, but that inferior technology kept getting better and better and better, and over time took over the business of the sailing ships. And by then, the the the, the, the manufacturers of the sailing ships had no expertise in building uh, high you know high technology steamships, uh, and they all of them failed at transitioning to this new technology. So. One of the uh, very interesting points that you raise, you, you, you pose this question, what if every company in the S&P 500 became a software as a service? What, what does that, what, what impact does that have? Yeah, so, you know, Mark Andreessen has this, uh, this thesis, right, that software is eating the world and we can clearly see that happening. But then he goes a step further and he says, look, uh, if that's the case, then that means that every company has to become a software company. And again, we're already seeing that. Like I go to a lot of these conferences and you see old old school companies saying we're hiring a bunch of developers. We're, we become, we're becoming a software company. Uh, we're hip. You know, come work for us. Uh, and it's, it's true to a lot to, to a big extent. And they have to do it because otherwise they'll be left behind. But then Mark Andreessen says, well, let's take it a step further if this is all true, then it turns out that the largest businesses in the world, the most the most successful businesses in the world, will eventually be software businesses. 
And again, we can already see that happening in, in many cases with things like Facebook and, and Alphabet, Google, right? Uh, these are some of the most valuable companies in the world and they're almost purely software-based. So uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting thought experiment because software as a service has this, uh, has this very uh, sort of interesting characteristic. Like, let's go back to Walmart, for example. Walmart, for many, many years uh, after its inception in the 60s, it was not generating free cash flow. It was sort of a quote-unquote money-losing business because they were building a lot of stores, they were opening a lot of distribution centers, and they were expanding across the country. But the unit economics were very attractive, right? So they would build a store, and they had a very high ROI on those stores. The same thing is true for the most successful software as a service companies. So they are spending a lot of money on, on uh, research and development today to build the product and maintain it. They're also spending a lot of money on sales and marketing because back to our previous point, it makes a lot of sense to expand and try to capture as many customers as possible because then you can deliver services to them at, z at a zero marginal cost. So that makes the income statement look awful. It makes it makes it look like a money, which it is a money losing business, right? But again, if the unit economics are there, and the way we measure unit economics in the SaaS world is this uh, lifetime value of the customer, how long are you going to be my customer? How much are you going to pay me? And and so that's that's the value of, of of you as a customer, sort of divided by the customer acquisition cost, which is how much am I spending to acquire customers in the first place? If that's a a, a very high ratio then it's it's a it's a good uh, return on investment and and therefore i should be pouring money into this opportunity in fact uh, the sort of the canonical example is that if you're a SaaS, successful saas company the faster you grow the more money you lose uh, and now you know obviously everything that's good gets taken to an extreme and so you also have bad saas companies that are growing like this and it's you have to distinguish between the good ones and the bad ones now by virtue of this, these companies trade at very high PE multiples or sometimes inexistent PE multiples if they're losing money. Uh, so just as a thought experiment, it would be funny if if sort of the most meaningful S&P 500 companies or the large, let's say the entire index is composed of these companies because software is eating the world. That would just be sort of bonkers, right? It would sort of throw out, throw off a lot of people's models of the world because people are relying on, oh, the S&P is trading at a seven times uh, PE multiple. The 30-year the, uh, the or the 10-year treasury is at 2.5%. Sort of makes sense. Uh, but all of a sudden, if your PEs are 100x, uh, let's say that they're fully justified, right? Because these companies are growing and they're, let's say it's, let's say 100x is, is the correct number. Um, it would it it would be it would be sort of this crazy world, uh, and I just think it's interesting to think that way, just to uh, just to sort of as a forcing function uh, to to adapt as an investor and in how you analyze things. So you say they that may manifest as a bubble, or it might appear as a bubble, but it wouldn't in fact be a bubble because they would be they may be undervalued at that at that level. Right. So so I think that if we could snap our fingers and that world existed, all of a sudden. Uh, I think a lot of people would be saying we're in a bubble, right? The same way a lot of people are saying that SaaS companies uh, are in a bubble right now. And I think some of them are, but I think some of them are not. So you, you really have to distinguish. Do you view that state as a transition state or as an end state? Well, I, 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 I'm not really saying that this is going to happen. I just think it's an interesting thought experiment. Uh, 
I think what I think the most likely scenario is that we're going to have a lot of very valuable software-based companies, but by the time they become big enough to be a big part of the index, they will be already very profitable and therefore trading at a much more normal multiple. So uh, Facebook, as an example, trades today at a very low multiple relative to the quality of the business, and and it's it's not it's not really an enterprise obviously not an enterprise saas company but it's a quote unquote software as a service company in the sense that it delivers software over the internet at next to zero marginal cost so um, very different and i know you know i don't want people to get angry at, at at me not making this distinction because they don't have monthly subscribers and churn numbers and all that but um, you know effectively it's a software company so you say that the strategy in this um, in this marketplace is to land and expand. So can you just describe what that is? Yeah. So I heard this phrase recently, and I I don't, I don't remember who said it, but you cannot till, you cannot sort of harvest off land that you haven't uh, you haven't conquered yet, right? So first you have to conquer the land, and then you have to uh, you have to sort of plant the seed and harvest the land, because so let's play this out, right? Uh, because uh, because there's a zero marginal cost to conducting business over the internet, if I am not the aggressive guy who's going to build, let's say, whatever product it is, let's say whether it's Zoom or Slack or Netflix or whatever it is, if I'm not going to be the aggressive guy who's going to build this product and conquer the world first and then monetize my user base, somebody else will, right? Somebody else will get those if i let's say i i launch zoom and i'm charging 50 bucks a month somebody will undercut me and offer a freemium version where it's free to use and then you can upgrade as you need it and i will be disrupted if i'm charging 50 bucks a month to everyone that'll prevent me from landing the most customers therefore the better strategy is to offer that freemium version and get the most customers possible, right? Invest heavily in sales and marketing to then try to upsell those customers into a paid tier. And so you can see this uh, uh, clearly with a company like Slack, right? So Slack uh, offers you this, this free tier where uh, a number of users can use the product and then they'll say, listen, uh, oh, you're trying to search. Guess what? If you want to search past uh, 10,000 messages, you have to pay us because we're not gonna store your messages if you don't pay us. And so that becomes sort of then a choice whether you want to upgrade or not, but to get those those increase, uh, better features, you have to. So, but they already have you as a customer, you're already used to using them, you have all your channels set up, and you're like, you know what? Seven bucks a month, fine, right? Uh, and so then you become a customer. So I, I think it's a very interesting strategy and if you play if you play the sort of the, the game theory on this, you can see how it's it's a very it's a strategy that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you say that the incumbents have have two problems uh, when they're confronted with challenges like this. Right. So uh, you know the the first problem is, and this is something that that Clay Christensen describes a lot and and very clearly is is this idea that if you're going to uh, this, like because disruptors start out at the low end and because they start out with these relatively unprofitable customers and a lot of times they start in markets that are inexistent or very small uh, because these are sort of uh, these are not markets served by by the by the incumbents by definition um, 
that becomes a very, very poor proposition. If I if I am a large incumbent and I have five billion in sales, why on earth am I going to spend my time chasing an opportunity that may or may not pan out in a market that may or may not exist uh, at a lower margin that I have right now? I'm never going to do that. I'm going to dedicate all of my resources to serving my most profitable customers, right, and trying to sell them more things. Um, so so that's that's a that's a huge problem. Um, and then the the second problem is the, they have this uh, this uh, skill in controlling distribution again pre-internet uh, world controlling distribution again back to the Procter and Gamble example I, I have the slots in the supermarket and the end caps and the trucks to the supermarket and I also have this uh, skill in segmenting my customers so I'm going to sell I have the premium detergent and the medium and the low end detergent. Um, I do not have the skill, however, in going direct to consumer. I do not have the skill in internet advertising. Uh, I do not have the skill in aggregating customers at scale, uh, sort of this land and expand motion. So it's uh, it's very difficult for for these companies to do these two things, uh, obviously to disrupt themselves and to to have this sort of uh, internet mentality. By the way, it's it's fascinating because if you uh, if you look at the history of Amazon, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos read this book, uh, Innovator's Dilemma, and he makes all of his top executives read the book. And it, it's fascinating to me because as you read the book, you're like, wow, Amazon has engineered itself to be the antidote to this, uh, to sort of, okay, you see a problem in the book and you're like, wow, Amazon, that's clearly why Amazon does does X or Y. And I'll give you an example. Uh you know, small markets or inexistent markets only really matter if you're a small team, right? If you're a huge company, you're not going to look at it. So what does Amazon have? Amazon has these uh, two pizza teams, right? Because to a, a two pizza team, a, a market that's, you know, $10 million in sales or $100 million in sales is going to be a meaningful market. And so that takes care of that problem, right? So it's it's very interesting. And, and there's endless examples of this in the book where you're, you're reading it and you're like, well, Amazon... Uh, operates this way to counteract this problem. So I, I, I'm, I love the description that you've given. Uh, how does it, how does it show up in your portfolio? What do you, what do you hold, and and how do you, sort of a, a, a further question? How do you manage those positions? Do you, how many do you hold? How many do you, do you trim when they grow? How, how do you look after the portfolio? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So. Um, I really want to get to the trimming uh, question because I think it's it's a very interesting point. Um, I, you know, as you study these companies, you start seeing all these uh, secular trends, and and secular trends are uh, are displayed in these technology adoption curves. So if you go back and and look at the history of technology since the industrial revolution, every technology has had this adoption curve, where everything from electricity to indoor plumbing, the automobile. Uh, dishwashers, the radio, TV, internet, social media, et cetera. And it starts out obviously with zero penetration and then it goes, you know, how many households have the access to this product or service. And, and then you can see, you can see, okay, well, what are the businesses that are taking advantage of this adoption curve? And what are the businesses that have sort of the wide moats or the growing moats that are riding this wave? And, you know, Apple is sort of this canonical example that, uh, we don't own Apple, by the way, but um, it's sort of a canonical example of a company that 
created the iPhone, and it was a very successful new category, this, this uh, computer in your pocket with a touchscreen, et cetera. And it became this enormous adoption curve of, of sort of more and more people around the world adopting this product. And so they rode that to become one of the world's most uh, valuable businesses, right? Um, Facebook, again, with social media, uh, the adoption of social media around the world, uh, so, uh, you know, Google uh, with uh, with search and, and then Android. So what are the where are we on on these adoption curves today? What are sort of the adoption curves of the future and how can we position ourselves to take advantage of that? Uh, that's sort of how I think about the portfolio. So one big adoption curve that I'm very excited about is cloud computing. So the analogy there very briefly is. Back in the day, in uh, during the Industrial Revolution, every factory, uh, people were electrifying. Electricity was was a, became a thing in the late 1800s, and people were electrifying their factories and replacing, uh, let's say, water wheels or or steam power with electricity. Um, and it was it was very burdensome. You had to build your own power plant, and you had your own engineers and all that. And and this entrepreneur Sam Insel came and said, "Look, I'll, I'll build a centralized power station, and I'll." run a wire to your factory. Now you can get rid of all this machinery and all your engineers and all that. Well, that's exactly what's happening with cloud computing, right? It's like get rid of all your servers and your database administrators and all your, you know, a lot of your IT folks dedicated to just maintaining this hardware. We'll keep it all for you in the cloud in a central secure um, um, data center and we'll run a fiber optic cable to your office and we'll give you incredible uh, functionality through all these pieces of software, these APIs and, and all these all these things that we're developing and constantly updating and patching. And so that's exploding. And every company around the world is 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 in the process of moving to the cloud or is already on the cloud. And the largest one is uh, Amazon Web Services. So those companies, Amazon Web Services number one, Microsoft Azure number two, and Google Cloud Platform number three. I'm ignoring the Chinese clouds because uh, uh, Alibaba and Tencent because I, I have a hard time believing that they will be successful in the West. Uh, like, which chief technology officer is going to want to put data in a Chinese cloud? Uh, unless you're serving Chinese customers and you're required to, I think it's. I don't think it's going to be that big of a business. But uh, so those companies are growing very fast. Uh, you can see the the finance. You know the numbers. AWS discloses its sales and operating income. And, uh, and and so and then you have estimates of what the size of the market is. And so where are we on that on that adoption curve? So that's very exciting. But then this is an enabling technology, right? The cloud enables new business models to be built on top of it. And of course, that's software as a service. Uh, and so what are the platforms being built on top of AWS and Azure and Google Cloud? And that's another layer that we're looking at, obviously, uh, to see this adoption, these adoption curves taking place. Um, so, so those are, that's sort of a, a very big theme in the portfolio. Um, how do you value something like that? You're looking at, you're estimating the size of the market, the total addressable market. You're trying to work out what that's worth at, at close to a steady state. And then you're discounting that back. Is that how you're, I mean, I, I can, I, I understand the, uh, you know, working out the lifetime value of a customer working out the cost to acquire that customer. Uh, so, but how do you ultimately value something like that? Yeah, great question. So, oh yeah, and I want to get to your, to your question about uh, trimming, which I think is, is a very interesting question. But 
the value of anything is just the present value of its future free cash flows. Um, I, I do believe there is strategic value, like we have all these customers, we haven't monetized them yet, and we have, but you know, I, I don't value things based on strategic value. It's more, it's really, you know, old school free cash flow. So the way the way I think about it is these companies, um, they all they all have uh, a certain margin structure, and the margin structure today probably looks very different from the mar margin structure uh, at uh, maturity. And by maturity, I just define it as the company is large enough now to have uh, a more rational cost structure in terms of sales and marketing uh, expenses to its revenues and R&D to revenues, et cetera. And we can look at comparables and look at what these companies should have in terms of margin, like you know, Salesforce when it was a uh, just starting out versus Salesforce today and, and et cetera. And there's plenty of examples. So a company like like Slack is a good good one to to pick on because Slack has 85% gross margins and that's a very good starting point right if you're selling a product that has 85% gross margins uh, then you have a lot of play there as far as your operating expenses so it's it's quite likely that 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 Slack is going to have very healthy uh, free cash flow margins uh, down the road, and and you can look at Atlassian as a as a potential comparable. Uh, although Atlassian is sort of the gold standard of very low sales and marketing expenses, but you know it's possible that Slack is going to have uh, 25 to 30 percent free cash flow margins, uh, which is in fact what the company has has guided to. Um, so what you do is, you know, what we do in our case is we always build a model for these companies and we figure out, well, how, how many customers can they have realistically and how much can, can their top line grow and how will the margins evolve? Uh, is there going to be any free cash flow along the way that adds to, uh, adds on the, you know, gets uh, piled up on the balance sheet or is used for, for M&A, mergers and acquisitions? Um, and, and we try to come with, come up with a realistic value for the business uh, several years from now. And then we figure out what the internal rate of return is between today's price and the future price of the business. And this is, of course, uh, by the way, I always tell everyone, I know that my models are wrong. I just don't don't know the magnitude and the direction because <laughs> these things are art, as you know, uh, a lot of art and, and a little bit of science. But you you it's better to have a rough idea of what the market is imputing. So I'll tell you, back in the day when I was investing in things with, at 10 times earnings, for example, right, the way that I would do this, I remember buying uh, uh, eBay, for example. eBay in 2008 was trading at something like six times free cash flow at the bottom, or maybe it was at the bottom in 2009. Uh, and I remember buying this thing and making a case that, look, um, anything below 10 times earnings, if I'm using a 10% discount rate, if you plug it into the perpetuity formula, it's implying perpetual decline, saying this company's never going to grow again. And I just think that's absurd. I think eBay will grow. So that is a very interesting way to sort of bracket your margin of safety. And you can do the same thing with high growth companies. You can say, well, how, how, how low of a rate of growth do I have to put into my model such that I get the current enterprise value uh, between now and and the you know judgment day and uh, sometimes it's just this incredibly low rate of growth and you're like well this is clear I clearly do not believe that this is going to be the state of the world so I think that there's a very low risk that I'm going to lose money on this but I have huge optionality to the upside uh, if the company grows the way I think it'll grow so you know and back to our discussion on Microsoft versus uh, Coca-Cola 
obviously not all of these companies are going to become big like Microsoft, um, but uh, they have a lot of flexibility as far as building products and and discovering customer pain points because they are software-based companies, because they have they all have visibility. They these these companies know you know what you're clicking on in their in their application, what features you're using, what features are frustrating their users, and they can then build things to improve that customer experience. So it's sort of this very tight flywheel that has really never existed in the history of business. So it's very interesting. Uh, Marcelo, it's absolutely fascinating, and I could keep on speaking to you for another hour, but that—that uh, that is the full hour. Um, I'm very grateful for you coming on and, and uh, educating me and everybody who listens. If folks want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about you, how do they go about doing that? Well, uh, thank you, Tobias. And, uh, you know, I'm on Twitter, Marcelo, uh, Marcelo P. Lima, uh, M-A-R-C-E-L-O-P-L-I-M-A, and the website is hellerhs.com. And I'll make sure that those links are in the uh, in the show notes. Marcelo, thank you very much. My pleasure, Tobias.